0: If you're tired of these promos, supporters get the podcast early and ad-free. Just go to donate.bogosity.tv for the links to sign up. Welcome to the Bogosity Podcast for the week of January 28, 2024. The podcast that invented the robotic tree. This is your host, Shane Killian. Let's pigeonize the news of the bogus. For years now, and yes, this was before the 2020 election, we've been covering the problems with voting machines in Georgia, and how the government not only seems to want to do nothing about it, but actually wants it to be broken. This case goes back to August of 2017, and is filed by Democrats and Democratic groups, with Republicans named in the defendants' list. So anyone who wants to censor this podcast as a 2020 mega-election-interference-conspiracy-whatever is going to have a hard time justifying it. Anyway, Dominion was dealt a major embarrassment in court when a cybersecurity expert demonstrated how easy it is to hack into their voting machines and change vote totals using only a ballpoint pen. We've covered before a testimony claiming numerous vulnerabilities with the ImageCast X ballot marking devices or BMDs. We covered many of the issues, including how easily malware could be installed by any voter, including root shell access, all of the volumes that poll workers could exploit, and even problems with the QR code authentication that could make the voter believe he voted one way while it was recorded a different way and they could cover their tracks by manipulating the logs. Now, the report demonstrating all of this in detail, which was authored by J. Alex Halderman, professor of computer science and engineering at the University of Michigan, is now public. The Federal District Court for the Northern District of Georgia ordered it unsealed last June, but Judge Amy Totenberg kept it sealed until last week. Only a redacted copy has been available. By the way, the judge is the sister of NPR correspondent Nina Totenberg. And by the way, Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger had known about these vulnerabilities for TWO YEARS. Halderman was given 12 weeks of access to an unused Dominion machine to investigate and create the report. Halderman had moved for the report to be unsealed so that it could be shared with CISA. Halderman's report was limited to the ballot marking device so it's unknown how many vulns there might be in other parts of the system. But this is bad enough. In court, he was able to completely change the results of a hypothetical election, producing as many ballots as he wanted, changing votes as he wanted, and even rebooting a machine into super-user mode. He did so by borrowing a ballpoint pen from the lead counsel and sticking it into the machine and holding down the power button. He said on the stand, All it takes is five seconds and a big pin. He made an absolute joke out of all the so-called safeguards the state insisted were in place to ensure election integrity. Even their claim that it would only affect that one voting machine, which would be bad enough, was shown to be specious, as Halderman demonstrated that you could go on from there to access the election management server and change every such voting machine it managed. Back in June, he wrote on his blog, quote, The most critical problem we found is an arbitrary code execution vulnerability that can be exploited to spread malware from a country's central election management system to every BMD in the jurisdiction. This makes it possible to attack the BMDs at scale, over a wide area, without needing physical access to any of them. Our report explains how attackers could exploit the flaws we found to change votes or potentially even affect election outcomes in Georgia, including how they could defeat the technical and procedural protections the state has in place. Haldeman also said that Georgia would not be installing any of Dominion's security patches before the 2024 election. Deputy Secretary of State Jordan Fuchs said, We don't negotiate with election deniers. If they have an idea that wouldn't take Georgia back to the days of hanging chads and stuffed ballot boxes, they should offer it. Yeah, they're going to fight paper ballots and hand-counting with everything they have. And the main question every Georgia voter should be asking is, why? If you're looking for a way to support this channel without advertising. Use the link below to visit this channel on odyssey.com and see many of your other favorites there as well. We've been covering the investigative reporting Steve Baker has been doing about the January 6th Capitol occupation and how he helped reveal many untold truths about that day, including perjured testimony from at least two Capitol Hill police officers in open court. Now, his attorneys have posted documents detailing the ongoing threats of prosecution against him from the Biden administration. The letter includes a statement from Baker saying, quote, For the past eight months, I have been reviewing non-public closed-circuit television video and body-worn camera video in the possession of Congress at the invitation of the Speaker of the House. I have found and published stories about video evidence that contradicts claims made by the Department of Justice and evidence presented by the DOJ in various trials of the January 6th defendants. After not having indicted me for three years, it is clear that any move to do so now will be in retaliation for my reporting. First about apparently perjured testimony of key government witnesses Harry Dunn and David Lazarus, and now about the true identity of the passerby who discovered the pipe bomb outside the DNC headquarters a short distance from the Capitol. The passerby was actually a U.S. Capitol Police officer. In August of 2021, the FBI arranged an interview with him, but then canceled at the last minute. In October, he did a two-hour interview with the FBI regarding his coverage of Jan 6. They claimed he would be charged, quote, "...within the week." Twenty-six months later, no charges have been filed. So, August of last year, the DOJ served him with a subpoena for the videos he took on Jan 6, and he complied. On December 14, they again informed him that charges are about to be filed. Then, the next day, They told him the matter was being postponed. So basically they've been jerking him around for three years with threats of criminal charges. After reviewing information we've already covered about the perjury of Lazarus and Dunn, they get to the whole pipe bomb thing. Remember that? It seems to have been memory-holed by the press. His lawyers wrote, For nearly a year, the Department of Justice misrepresented in court filings that then-Vice President-elect Kamala Harris was inside the Capitol ahead of the proceedings involved in the counting of electoral votes. That turned out not to be true. Video evidence shows a near-total disinterest by the Secret Service agents assigned to VP Harris's protective detail when the pipe bomb was supposedly found. Curiously, the Secret Service cannot produce any of its various forms of internal communications audio recordings, or otherwise, from January 6. There is simply no question that the public and the press have been deceived about the pipe bomb incident. The Department of Justice was forced to correct misrepresentations made in court documents about the location of VP Harris, having alleged in many early cases that she was inside the Capitol when, in fact, she was at the DNC headquarters. The belief among many in the January 6th defense community has long been that the pipe bombs at the DNC and RNC offices were a ruse meant to draw manpower of the U.S. Capitol Police away at the same time the crowd was anticipated to begin arriving for planned and permitted protests. It is believed that the need to address the pipe bombs was going to be offered as an excuse for why the U.S. Capitol Police were undermanned and unprepared to maintain security at the Capitol grounds. There was a politically motivated desire for the scheduled and permitted protest activities on the afternoon of January 6 to become an unruly spectacle, but an excuse had to be created for why the U.S. Capitol Police would not be able to control the situation. Such an excuse could not create embarrassment for the leadership of that force. All of that is foundation for their claims, quote, that Steve's reporting has so agitated officials in multiple federal agencies that an effort is now underway to find a basis to charge Steve with more serious crimes. If this is true, that will be evidence of retaliation against a journalist exercising his First Amendment rights to report information that is embarrassing to government officials another breaking of institutional norms by the Department of Justice. Steve Baker said on the ex-formerly known as Twitter, "quote These weaponized federal agencies continue to allocate resources, charge, arrest, SWAT, prosecute, imprison, and destroy the lives of alleged misdemeanor J-6 offenders while ignoring far more serious crimes of all types. They also continue to prosecute and threaten independent journalists who did not publish or submit their stories with the correct narrative, while ignoring the actions of at least 60 other journalists who also entered restricted spaces without permission. Now, within days of my having broken significant stories about perjury, cover-ups, and other improprieties within the Capitol Police, the FBI, the Justice Department, and the Secret Service, we have learned that the DOJ is looking for face-saving measures against me. This is despite the fact these agencies know I did no violence or property damage on J6, and I'm not a part of MAGA or any type of militia org. The investigating FBI agents, in my voluntary interview, even thanked me for doing no violence on J6." In a challenge to the DOJ, his legal team prepared to challenge the way the Biden administration has gotten so many bogus convictions by having the trials in the biased and rigged D.C. District Court. If you are so convinced in the strength of your case against Steve Baker, we invite you to join in a stipulation with the defense to have Steve's case tried in the United States District Court for the Eastern District of North Carolina or the Northern District of Texas. Are citizens of those two districts not suitable for jurors in Steve's case? Is the federal judiciary in those two districts not able to provide a fair and impartial trial? On what basis does the United States Department of Justice believe the United States can only get a fair trial in the District of Columbia and not one of those United States? That's a good question, one everyone should have been asking all along. In stupid copyright tricks, we once again see a completely stupid claim being made that legal filings are copyrightable. I mean, granted, today's copyright laws are so absurdly open-ended they're made to cover absolutely anything, but this actually puts the lie to the entire stated purpose for copyrights, which is quote to promote the progress of science and useful arts. That means it's supposed to incentivize creative writing. There are all sorts of reasons why that's bogus, but we'll leave them aside for today. The point is, lawyers don't need the incentive of copyright to write legal filings. They write them because it's their job to write them in the course of representing their clients. And yet, this claim has come up before, when Newegg's Chief Legal Officer Li Cheng sued another lawyer for copyright infringement because he copied from one of his briefs. The other lawyer was his co-counsel, Ezra Sutton, who was also representing another company in the same lawsuit. They had discussed filing a joint brief and decided against it, and when Sutton filed his brief, it turns out he had largely copied from Cheng's. Cheng said it was a copyright violation, and the U.S. District Court for the Central District of California AGREED. And you also have a case in the SDNY. Of course the SDNY where Lexis and Westlaw were sued because they put briefs of a different attorney in their database. At least in the SDNY case it was found to be fair use, but it shouldn't even get to that question. There are also those saying it's bad form to copy another's briefs. I'm not even convinced of that. If you have a similar client, and you need to make the same arguments, why not? Isn't it the legal arguments that matter? According to the New York City Bar Association, quote, Unlike academic papers or writing samples, which purport to reflect the author's original work and analysis, legal briefs are submitted to present an argument on behalf of a client, and their value derives from their persuasiveness, not from their originality of thought or expression. A lawyer's signature on a brief is not a representation of authorship, much less of sole authorship, but rather a commitment to take responsibility for the contentions in the brief and an implied representation that the brief is not frivolous. We conclude that copying from other writings without attribution in a litigation filing is not per se deceptive and therefore is not a per se violation. But that hasn't stopped there from being new cases. The main difference here is that, unlike the new egg case where the brief wasn't filed, This brief from the high-priced law firm was, and the smaller firm, lacking their resources, took language from their brief in the course of representing their own client against the same patent troll. But if a brief has been filed in open court, and therefore become part of the public record, why wouldn't it then become public domain? The second case is even weirder, where a firm called UIRC filed legal documents and actually obtained copyright registrations from them. Then, when they retained William Blair to promote their bonds, he revised the UIRC documents for his own filing. The UIRC then sued him for copyright infringement. The twist? The UIRC created the documents to begin with by revising documents from the Idaho Housing and Finance Association. The Seventh Circuit ruled, UIRC did not independently create most of the language in the documents at issue. Instead, it copied much of the language from the Idaho materials. We agree with the District Court that the language UIRC did draft lacks the creative expression required for copyright protection. It is either facts, fragmented phrases, or language dictated solely by functional considerations. Whatever legal ethics this might violate, it's beyond silly to claim copyright protection. This language is 100% functional, not creative. Especially when you consider what attorneys charge for writing these. Do you have children, or nieces or nephews? Are you homeschooling or just want to counter some of the socialist indoctrination most children get in school? And now it's time to misreallocate this week's Biggest matter And this week, it goes to the January 6th Committee, or more accurately, the United States House Select Committee to investigate the January 6th attack on the United States Capitol. We've covered before how that committee was a fraud from start to finish. We also covered how they didn't do their job in turning over a lot of the evidence to the House Administration Subcommittee on Oversight when they disbanded. Now, we have specifics on just how much is missing. Jan 6 Committee Chairman Benny Thompson was supposed to have turned over four terabytes of data, but the hard drives they archived with the Clerk of House contained less than three. In particular, There are 117 encrypted files that the committee deliberately deleted before turning the drive over. Since they were deleted, not shredded, a digital forensics team were able to recover them, but since some of them were password-protected, the subcommittee cannot access them all. Chairman Barry Loudermilk has written to Thompson requesting the passwords. Of the recovered files they could access, he wrote, One recovered file disclosed the identity of an individual whose testimony was not archived by the select committee, and said that others included, quote, "...specific transcribed interviews and depositions to the White House and Department of Homeland Security." Those were not archived with the Clerk of House. As for what the encrypted files contain, Loudermilk said in a statement, quote, "...we don't know yet what's in the deleted and encrypted deleted files." If the former January 6th select committee has nothing to hide, then why would they prevent Americans from seeing all the evidence produced in their investigation? They were hiding something, and we will continue to uncover the truth. He also said, quote, It's obvious that Pelosi's select committee went on to great lengths to prevent Americans from seeing certain documents produced in their investigation. It also appears that Benny Thompson and Liz Cheney intended to obstruct our subcommittee by failing to preserve critical information and videos as required by House rules. Congressman Greg Murphy said, quote, The Democrat-led J6 committee obviously took great strides to shield certain information from us. The question is, why? What are they trying to hide? Their whole plan was to get to the truth of the matter. They obviously didn't want the real truth, just their truth. And all that comes amid new information showing that they colluded with Fannie Willis about the Trump-Georgia prosecution. The more we learn about what the Jan 6 committee did, the worse and worse they look. So all that makes the January 6th committee this week's biggest bogot emitter. Go to Firmoo, that's F I R M O TV anytime you need quality glasses at a low price. Once again, that's Firmoo dot dot TV. Now let's penny electomize this week's Idiot Idiot. What's worse than anti-AI hysteria? Anti-AI hysteria that comes from Congress. In this case, it's the No Artificial Intelligence, Fake Replicas, and Unauthorized Duplications Act of 2024, or the No AI Fraud Act, co-authored by Maria Elvira Salazar and Madeline Dean. Well, I'm sure they had people write it for them. And someone had to come up with that goofy acronym. Although, when you actually look at it, it's dumb enough to be Salazar and Dean. I mean, it even said, of 2023 originally, and someone struck it out and wrote 2024 in blue ink. It's really about likeness rights. But there's really nothing this act protects against that isn't already protected against. For example, the act mentions, quote, AI technology was used to create a false endorsement featuring Tom Hanks' face in an advertisement for a dental plan. But that has always been a problem. Someone puts a celebrity photo on something to imply endorsement. That's ALREADY ILLEGAL, and you don't need a new law for it! They also mention people making songs using AI voices that sound like other artists, which isn't an infringement at all, as long as you don't imply that it's the work of those other artists. It's just the screeching about how AI has copied your style, which has never been protected in the first place. And there's nothing really new about grabbing sounds and remixing from earlier songs, as long as it's different enough to be considered a transformative work instead of merely derivative, then it's protected fair use. And there have always been impersonators like Rich Little who can almost precisely mimic the voices of the people they impersonate. The fact is... This act has little to do with generative AI, and is really a sledgehammer of a revision to publicity rights law. What started as a way to protect against fraudulent associations such as celebrity endorsements has, just like the rest of IP, been WAY overextended to include someone's voice, the look of a sports car, and even a golfer's swing. Woody Allen sued over a look-alike in a commercial. Bette Midler sued over a voice impersonator in a commercial. Vanna White sued a VCR maker for depicting a futuristic Wheel of Fortune robot in a blonde wig. On and on and on. All enabled by judges, who absolutely refuse to consider the First Amendment implications. This act would not only extend all of that, it completely ignores fair use in things like parody. For example. SNL doing impersonations of the president or other celebrities. In fact, it's so broad, it encompasses anything digital, including digital photos, photoshops, and even drawings in MS Paint. The first bit of idiocy is that it applies to all human beings, living or dead. And later on, it says, quote, The rights provided for, in paragraph 1, constitute intellectual property rights and are freely transferable and descendable, in whole or in part, and do not expire upon the death of the individual, whether or not such rights were commercially exploited by the individual during the individual's lifetime. It would punish each violation with a $50,000 fine, or actual damages plus profits, whichever is greater. Oh, and punitive damages, too. And the only proof it would require is, quote, Proof of the gross revenue attributable to the authorized use. And if you want proof, it's not about a fraudulent endorsement or other form of implied participation. Quote, it shall not be a defense to an allegation of a violation of paragraph 1 that the unauthorized user displayed or otherwise communicated to the public a disclaimer stating that the digital depiction, digital voice replica, or personalized cloning service was unauthorized, or that the individual rights owner did not participate in the creation, development, distribution, or dissemination of the unauthorized digital depiction, digital voice replica, or personalized cloning service." This goes WAY beyond what publicity rights were supposed to protect against. This bill would make them broad enough to include documentary reenactments, true crime shows, parodies, or depictions of historical figures. They're broad enough to include comedy skits, political cartoons, or even memes. They'd even cover a stylized likeness like a South Park character! The law also makes mincemeat of Section 230 by covering intermediaries, meaning that someone could also sue Meta or YouTube whenever a user posts such a meme or parody. Remember that Section 230 doesn't apply to IP claims, and this act categorizes likeness rights as a form of IP. The EFF released a statement warning how terrible the law would be if passed. There's not much that wouldn't fall into that category, from pictures of your kid, to recordings of political events, to docudramas, parodies, political cartoons, and more. If it involved recording or portraying a human, it's probably covered. Even more absurdly, it characterizes any tool that has a primary purpose of producing digital depictions of particular people as a personalized cloning service. Our iPhones are many things, but even Tim Cook would likely be surprised to know he's selling a cloning service. Although it makes certain First Amendment exceptions, the Act ignores that the First Amendment is always an exception and it seeks to LIMIT the First Amendment protections to far less than what the Constitution guarantees. It's there to restrict your First Amendment rights, not enable them. It would be wrong to say that this Act would create more problems than it solves, because it solves no problems whatsoever. Everything it lists that's an actual problem is already covered by existing legislation. In fact, it's so poorly conceived that you have to wonder if it was written by an AI. Except, an AI would never be that dumb. So all of that makes Salazar and Dean this week's... Idiot, Extraordinary. Idiot. Extraordinary. Well, that wraps up this i can not decide whether you are a rogue or a halfwit or both edition of the Bogosity Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please go to donate.bogosity.tv for several ways to support and discord.bogosity.tv to join the discussion. Subscribe at Patreon or Subscribestar and you can listen early and ad-free. Thank you for listening. Until next time, here's a quote from Ron Paul. Too many believe that there must be limits on freedom. They argue that freedom must be directed and managed to achieve fairness and equality, thus making it acceptable to curtail, through force, certain liberties. Some decide what and whose freedoms are to be limited. These are the politicians whose golden life is power. Their success depends on gaining support from special interests. The Bogosity Podcast is licensed under Creative Commons attribution on commercial low derivatives 4.0 international license. Bogosity.